Tour Guide Tell All is sponsored by Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local DC area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who may have more questions than answers. Like us at DC by Foot, we're really excited for our educational content meeting where they're gonna talk all about liability issues for tour guides. Visit their website at Malloy, M-A-L-L-O-Y dash law, L-A-W dot com. Or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Now on to the Rebecca's. tour guide tell all welcome to another wonderful episode uh we are your friendly neighborhood tour guides out here to share with you some of the more interesting and scandalous pieces of our history before we jump in we'll introduce ourselves as always i'm becca i'm rebecca and together we are the rebecca's smooth. Um, We are into the fall season. We're coming up to election day. And as you know, if you've listened to the podcast, we always do election related episodes uh, as we get close to election day. Uh, And this is part two of a three-parter we've decided to do (laughs) on the election of 1968. It started with, oh, we're going to talk about the election of 1968. That's an episode. No, people have written entire books about the election of 1968. This has grown into a three-part series um, because you really have to understand what's going on. So um, before we jump in, we're really getting closer to the election in the episode you're going to listen to today. And as a friendly reminder, be sure to go vote. Hopefully everyone listening is registered and well aware of how to vote in their states. If not, you can message either of us on Instagram, email, send us. We are always here to help you get registered to vote or help you learn about how to vote in your local, state, and nationwide elections. Anytime, any year. Absolutely. We are big voting fans. So yeah, we wanted to do a two-parter. Well, originally this was going to be just one episode, and then it was a two-parter. And then it there's just a lot. Like 1968 was crazy. So this is going to be the middle of three episodes. Uh, if you have not listened to the first one, that provides a lot of needed context that gives you the sort of background and the civil rights piece and the Vietnam piece. This episode, we're going to talk about the major candidates and the conventions. And then don't you worry, there's plenty of drama left for the third episode involving, you know, the Southern strategy and some shenanigans around throwing the election. So it's good fun. The whole thing. It's crazy. Um, So to dive right in, We're going to start basically where we are, where we ended last time, right? Bobby Kennedy has been assassinated. So it's June. The Democratic frontrunner has been killed. Martin Luther King Jr. has been assassinated a few months earlier. And so we are, the. this is the original Democrats in disarray, which is a phrase that I hate. I hate it. Hate it. But in this case... It's kind of accurate. There has almost never really been, I think, an election cycle like this where you have a an incumbent 
who had won handily, probably could have won again, who's not running. Mm -hmm. Then you have this charismatic, incredible, you know, guy who's broken out in the campaign and then he's killed. You have all of this upheaval at home. And so there really is nobody who's really now the clear and easy pick. And so the disarray is very, very real. Uh, not to mention among the candidates, but among the many factions that exist whenever you have an election. Yes. So the front runner has been assassinated, which leaves his 393 delegates uncommitted. We don't know what's going to happen with that yet. The middle of June, we have basically three candidates, the vice president, Hubert Humphrey, Senator Eugene McCarthy, and George McGovern. Those are your three candidates and the Democratic side. We'll drill down on each of these in turn. Hubert Humphrey is ahead in the delegate count. Humphrey is seen as the president's candidate. He's the vice president. He's very close with Johnson. In fact, given that vice presidents are generally, they work for the president. Even with that caveat, Humphrey had tied himself very closely to LBJ throughout the four years that they were in the White House together. So Humphrey has very much made himself Johnson's man. He doesn't start his campaign until after LBJ is going to bow out at the end of March. Which, as you recall, Humphrey gets maybe like a 30 minute heads up before everybody else that this right. is coming. And Humphrey and Johnson go back to the Senate. They go back to having these Senate ties. And so in a lot of ways, Humphrey is very similar to LBJ in that they come up in the Senate around the same time. They're passionate about the same issues. Um, Humphrey cares about civil rights. He cares about a lot of the things that Johnson has built into the great society. So um, these are things that they share. So he's tied himself to the president, but not nearly out of a sense of riding his coattails. The two of them have shared many of the same policy priorities even before coming to the White House. He's been criticized for his complete loyalty to Johnson, which knowing Johnson, I don't think Johnson would have had it any other way. Like, I can't imagine a man like Johnson, like not demanding complete loyalty from his vice president. Um, he is also one labor. So Humphrey has the backing of organized labor, which is huge. This is going to make um, his the problems for Humphrey is that his pro-war stance essentially is going to negate his civil rights record. And so he's told this, like he's tied himself to Johnson. Johnson is tied to the Vietnam War. And that is going to negate Humphrey's very real civil rights record. He's got some very real wins on civil rights. He's got a very firm stance about this. And he makes other Democratic groups nervous. He's so establishment. He's so Johnson. Uh, and so that's where Humphrey is. McCarthy is a senator from Minnesota, which is also where Humphrey is from. He's anti-war. So he's not a fan of the war at all. And initially, when McCarthy initially runs, he does not have a following. He's initially like a very bottom candidate. But the rising opposition to Tet, the Tet Offensive, as the war is getting worse and worse, as 1968 continues to roll on, that's going to give McCarthy a significant lane. And so he's going to stake out the anti-war lane. He's going to appeal to the anti-war candidates. And for lack of really a more nuanced discussion, that's his only really major policy point. This is, you know, Humphrey has many ideas about what the country could be over the next four years. McCarthy's constantly beating the drum of the anti-war thing, which is, of course, on the forefront of most Americans' mind. But that's really all he's bringing to the table from a sort of campaign perspective. Right. He doesn't have a whole lot else. And McGovern 
is the senator from one of the senators from South Dakota. He is expected to be a big long shot, but he actually wins the New Hampshire primary. So he's going to come kind of out of nowhere. And in the wake of Bobby Kennedy's death, he's going to try to take the Kennedy lane, but fails. So he's going to try to take pick up the enthusiasm that Bobby Kennedy brought and the charisma that Bobby Kennedy brought. And he just does not, cannot make that work. Uh, and so McGovern is sort of fading from, uh, as we move into the summer, McGovern is fading from contention. But neither Humphrey nor McCarthy have a clear lead. So with the, the summer happening, and as we'll see in just a second, the Republicans fairly quickly coalesce around a candidate. As the summer's going on, the Democrats don't have a clear winner. There's been all of this unrest, including one of the candidates has been assassinated. And so they don't have a clear winner. And their convention is at the end of August. And so there's not a clear Democratic frontrunner until literally the end of the summer. And so that's kind of where the Democrats are for a lot of us. And then there's the Republicans. Let's talk about Richard Nixon, Becca. Oh, let's. <laughs> Surely we can keep this to a, a brief discussion of Richard Nixon. Yes. <laughs> From the downbeat, Nixon is the prohibitive favorite. Nixon is nowhere near new to the national stage at this moment at all. There are some who challenge him about more in a minute, but uh, Nixon was first elected to Congress in 1946 from the California 12th. He defeats a longtime Democratic incumbent, and he's going to link his opponent, uh, Jerry Voorhees, uh, to quote unquote radical views. This will not be the first time he does this, guys. No, this this comes back around. Nixon is very quickly going to establish a reputation for two very big things. And this continues throughout his political career. Number one, he is a huge anti-communist. Very big, very like has big anti-communist bona fides. That's his big thing. He is stridently anti-communist. The other thing that he's going to establish pretty quickly is that he kind of likes to play a little fast and loose with the rules. No. No. What? What? <laughs> you know how this all turns out for Nixon. Ethically questionable behaviors from Richard Nixon. So he's it serves two terms in the House and then sets his sights higher. And he's going to run for the Senate in California in 1950. And I would like to just briefly mention, though, he defeats a woman. Um, one of the first women to run, like this is 1950, uh, he runs against a former actress named Helen Gahagan Douglas, who is actually really fascinating. Um, she would have been at really, she had been in Congress herself. She was a dynamic uh, personality. She's really kind of interesting. And um, Nixon, it's a terribly bitter campaign. Nixon is going to accuse her of communism like almost outright, like he almost says it. He basically pulls out her voting record in Congress, compares it to a representative who's reputed to be a communist and says, oh, well, this guy's kind of a communist and Helen Goggin Douglas votes with him like 95% of the time. Clearly she has communist sympathies too. And so that's basically, he draws a direct line for her to communism. And in 1950, you're not coming back from that, right? Like that's it. At one point, he literally says she is pink right down to her underwear, which is not just misogynistic, but also very much in this sort of communist fear baiting, right? Yes. Um, this sense that she can't be trusted. The idea that I read that quote, too, and it just made my blood boil on so many levels. Yeah. At any rate, this is where his nickname Tricky Dick comes from. 
He gets elected to the Senate, but does not spend much time there either. Uh, two years later, he has been in D.C. for six years. He's not even 40 yet. He has a strong anti-communist reputation. And because of that, he's going to be tapped to be the vice president uh, on the Eisenhower ticket. He and Eisenhower reputedly don't particularly get along. They're very different. Yeah. A little bit. They're very different generationally. They're different temperamentally. Uh, but Eisenhower wants to, you know, someone who's new, someone who's from California, someone who's got anti-communist. And so that's where Nixon is. So Nixon's then going to spend eight years as Eisenhower's vice president. And so by 1960, he figures it's his turn. Presumptive favorite. I mean, sure. Eisenhower is a very popular two-term president. Mm-hmm. Those are eight prosperous years. You've been VP. You've been cultivating your base. Mm-hmm. He thought 1960 was going to be a cakewalk. And someday we will do a 1960 election pod. This is not that time. Suffice it to say, he loses very narrowly, like extremely. It's one of the most narrow losses in modern American politics. To John F. Kennedy, just in case you're listening and you couldn't remember. So, I mean, he has to go up against JFK, and that does not go so well for Nixon. No. Ultimately. Ultimately. Um, And it does, you know, it does, I think... Nixon is such a political animal, right? This is just his whole life. He's like Johnson, although the two men are very different. These are men just born for this and who are so single-minded about a life in politics. And what happens in 1960 is going to be tough for Richard Nixon in that sort of losing this election, losing it narrowly. And there's almost this moment where you think like, and when you look at sort of how Nixon plays out the next couple of years, we're like, maybe he might be lured away to the private sector because there's money to be made, Mm -hmm. which people like money, everyone likes money. There's money to be made. Politics are changing a lot in the 1960s. He pledges not to run in 1964. And so there's sort of this like moment where you're like, maybe he's going to just not make another go. Right. But it's just, it's too tempting. Right. It's too tempting. There's the war. Mm-hmm. There's civil rights upheaval. There is this disarray within the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got LBJ not running. It's just, there's no way Nixon could could turn away. I like to think of him as like a moth to the flame. Absolutely. He couldn't stay away. And there's no front runner. The Republicans don't have a standard bearer. Goldwater has been soundly defeated four years earlier. And so Nixon is really the guy. And he really wants to be the guy. He's seen as a coalition candidate. He can sure. bring together a lot of factors within the Republican Party. And so he declares and is immediately the prohibitive favorite, runs a center right campaign. He talks about the silent majority, how there are a majority of people in this country who are silent. They aren't kind of activists in either direction, but they are basically for Nixon. And he takes a direct opposition to the democratic chaos. And you can see that's a pretty easy move, I feel like, politically. He's got mostly token opposition. The three main people who oppose him, the first is going to be George Romney, governor of Michigan. Yes, Mitt Romney's dad. The same family. Romney is initially very popular. He's a very popular governor in Michigan. He's done a lot of fairly, for the Republican Party, fairly progressive things. But he's an ineffective campaigner. Proves to be uh, not charismatic, especially. And so he kind of falls from favor. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller is also governor of New York uh, and too liberal. And so Nelson Rockefeller, the idea Nelson Rockefeller had is that he's going to appeal to sort of the middle, you know, kind of draw off support from um, 
the the middle and sort of the, the um, conservative Democrats. That's his idea. But he's just too liberal for the party faithful. So Rockefeller doesn't go anywhere. Reagan. Ever heard of Ronald Reagan? <laughs> We've already mentioned Reagan a bit in this podcast in terms of other elections. But this is 1968 and Reagan's already pushing towards the national stage. Yes, he's been governor of California, is at this point governor of California. He is going to take the right lane. So he's going to go to the right, strong evangelical views, strong religious views. He is a strong Nixon opponent. So the campaign, so if you listen to the 1976 episode uh, about the 1976 election, Reagan kind of comes back around and is like, hey, I knew this Nixon guy was bonkers uh, way back in 68. So Reagan is in 68 going to try to stake out the anti-Nixon far, uh, not far right, but right wing of the party. So that's, it doesn't go anywhere in 1968, but that's what Reagan is going to attempt to do. I mean, it's really Reagan's got one guy to his right. Reagan uh, and one guy to his left, Rocky, Nelson Rockefeller, and neither one of them in 68 has the juice and really can can really argue that they've got that centrist Republican lane. But this is definitely uh, we see Reagan sort of putting himself out there and building what will turn out to be a very, very strong strategy for him in the 70s. And Nixon has already been on the national stage. He has huge name recognition. He's been vice president. He's been on a national ticket twice and won and once and lost. And so he's, people know who he is. And so it's very natural that he would sort of coast to the Republican nomination. And indeed, the the convention is largely uneventful. It's in Miami at the beginning of August, which I would not have a convention in Miami in August. Like what? Hot. Um, Nixon wins on the first ballot. Not a lot of drama, not a lot of interest there. You know, it's sort of like, he's the guy. He's the guy. Oh, okay. The vice presidential conversation is a little more spirited. There are numerous candidates, including all of the people we've already mentioned. Every single one of them's name is in the mix. Yes. Reagan doesn't really want it because Reagan wants to be the guy. Uh, Rockefeller is too liberal. They're going to go through a bunch of different people. Nixon had actually his first choice was an ally of his, Robert Finch, who's the lieutenant governor of California. In fact, Reagan's lieutenant governor uh, at that time. Finch declines. Also, then Nixon is going to consider uh, his old running mate. When he ran in 1960, he had run with Henry Cabot Lodge, former senator. He's ambassador to the UN. And he's also very critically twice been ambassador to South Vietnam. And so Nixon is trying to play this war piece. He wants somebody who understands what's going on, who's got, you know, clout on the international stage, who understands, you know, war that we're involved in in the Vietnamese and all of this. And so that's why Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. is a particularly interesting candidate. But what he settles on (laughs) is the governor of Maryland, Spiro Agnew. Which let's just say the widespread reaction to that was Spiro who? This is not someone people knew outside of Maryland, where he is governor. (laughs) Spiro Agnew had been mayor of Baltimore and then governor of Maryland. And he is, he's perceived as a moderate, although as it turns out, not quite so much, no. (laughs) 
Um, Spiro Agnew comes to national attention that spring in response to the, for his strong response to the uh, protests following King's assassination in Baltimore. So Spiro Agnew kind of is the dark, very much the dark horse candidate. Nixon thought this would unite the party and sort of appeal both to your moderates and the Southern voters who are disaffected by Democrats. And so he's going to be your more moderate voice. Spiro Agnew turns out not to be moderate at all, but this gives you a sense of how little he was known on the national stage, that he appears at first to be a moderate. And then we have the Democratic Convention. So talk about a like uh, an exercise in contrast. So you've got this relatively low stakes, low drama Republican convention where the only little bit of like excitement is for the VP, which even still then, right, it's vice president. And they go with someone who's not at at the moment all that interesting. Spiro Agnew will become much more interesting to the press and to political D.C., later, and we'll talk about that in the future. The Democratic Convention, though, is a mess. Even just trying to find the location is like a debate, because LBJ wants to have it in Houston, which respect. It makes sense, though. He's from Texas. They want to keep a stronghold of the Democratic Party in Texas. They want to have it in Houston. This is like going to be the thing. But that is not where it's going to end up being, because there are going to be some movers and shakers, specifically Mayor Daley in Chicago. And he really wants to highlight how well he's been running the city and the leadership he has brought to this very intense year. And he's like, okay, this is going to be good. We're going to have this convention here and I'm going to be ready and it's going to be great. And that is not how it plays out. Yeah, no, Daly, Daly's a whole, whole mood. Um, Daly had been uh, mayor at this point for more than a decade. And he wants, he basically rules Chicago. Like he's in charge. And so he wants to, this is his moment. Like he's arriving on the national stage. He wants to show off his city, show off his his leadership, what he has done with the city. And he feels that the protests that are rumored are going to undermine his moment and threatens to stop them with force. So when delegates show up to the convention hall in Chicago, they're surrounded by barbed wire, which is not welcoming, I feel. If democracy has to happen behind barbed wire, like that's not an ideal moment here. Daly has refused permission for what he calls anti-patriotic groups to demonstrate. So we're violating several amendments here. He's refusing to give permits, uh, which is a First Amendment violation. He has put up barbed wire around. He's going to limit the press uh, and their access to the convention. Um, Chicago police is on a on 12-hour shifts, so they're working 12 hours for days at a time. Basically, every man they can spare is working this convention this whole weekend. Daly is determined that this is going to go peacefully. He even calls up the Illinois National Guard, which he can't do himself. You have to to go to the governor for that. Like, that's not something the mayor can do. The city will refuse to issue permits for demonstrators. And Daly essentially, like, walks right up to the line of threatening that the cops will beat demonstrators. 
which is less than ideal, I think. There are a few different types of demonstrators and it is impossible to sort of parse them all, I feel. But the big ones, the ones that sort of make daily the most nervous are gonna be called the Yibis, which is a fantastic and terrible name all at the same time. It stands for the International Youth, uh, Youth International Party, I should say. If you've heard of Abby Hoffman, this is him. Amy Hoffman is basically going to say that he, um, he, they're all, they are dirty, smelly, grimy, and foul, and um, they will basically be stoned or tripping on every drug known to man, and they'll do it out in public as well as all kinds of other terrible things. So basically, like that's Abby Hoffman's talking about how we're going to show up in Chicago and do whatever we want in full view of the whole country. You know, and so this is going to daily takes this threat very seriously and has much more excessive security. To Let's talk to you just for a quick moment about like they're talking about putting LSD in the water supply. They're talking about trying to infiltrate the delegates, which is a concern because several states have had highly contested slates of delegates. So going into this, there is debate about whether or not these states are actually sending legitimate delegates. Are the delegates coming going to be the people they're supposed to be? Can we trust that we're getting the right people in the hall? Um, it's a lot of, there becomes a lot of fear mongering around this, you know, this fear that, you know, they're going, there's going to be a complete disarray and it's going to be an illegitimate convention because everybody's going to get LSD in their water. And imagine just without getting into this too far, imagine you're Richard Nixon and you're watching this play out. This is going to give you so much ammunition for your if you're Richard campaign. Nixon, this is like the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus showed up at your house all at the same time. Like this is gift wrapped for Nixon. Like the convention hasn't even started yet. They're, the press are being limited. There's all kinds of protesters. They're talking about putting LSD in the water. Like this is. This is what yes. your average person in Peoria is worried about. Right. And it's, let's talk about limiting the press too, because. There is no better way to make sure that those cameras are where you don't want them to be than to say you can't be here. Yes. And the press is going to really push back against this even before the convention starts, the lack mm -hmm. of access. Walter Cronkite, who we mentioned in part one, is going to really call out daily for what he calls the unwarranted restriction of free and rapid access to information. And as we have said, when you've lost Cronkite, you're in trouble. So you've got reporters. TV crews, networks that are unhappy about the restrictions in place, and they are going to make sure that they get a good story out of this. So already Daily has misplayed this terribly, I think, on several fronts, but particularly in his handling of the media, because you're going to want the media on your side if things go wrong, which right, and you're giving to. You're giving the media a story. And the story is, look at these jerks who are limiting our access. So, of course, we're going to go out of our way to make the establishment look bad. And so that's the story you're handing them. And if you're limiting their access, what are they going to do but go to where the protesters are? Because they've got their time to fill. Right. This, yeah. Okay. So the um, inside the convention... There's tensions between the pro-war and the anti-war groups. And so there's not just this idea that like, 
you know, the Democrats are anti-war and the Republicans are pro-war. Not at all true. There's pro and anti-war factions in both parties, but particularly in the Democratic Party, there are people who believe that this war is necessary, that we're fighting communism, that there's like we need the sacrifice of American troops to ensure democratic South Vietnam is important. And then you have anti-war groups and there's spectrum, this the spectrum throughout this entire continuum here. Um, Humphrey <laughs> attempts to appeal to both sides. Just hard to do. Yeah. They yeah. want very different things. They want very different things. So basically Humphrey is going to say that we should have a pause in the bombing and de-Americanization of the war. So basically de-escalate American involvement, hand things over to the South Vietnamese, make sure they can fight their own wars. Johnson, the president of the United States, is not there. He does not go. He watches actually this on TV too. And he utterly rejects this and it very quickly gets ugly. And so now, not only are we having all the other things we mentioned, but the president of the United States and the current front runner to replace him are fighting publicly. Humphrey will give in to Johnson and he will later state that this is his biggest mistake, that he's going to essentially tamp down on his anti-war rhetoric. LBJ mistrusts Humphrey and taps his phones. So this is his own vice president. This is the guy he's been very close to for four years. Which are ethically questionable. Very much, yes. Humphrey, or LBJ, sorry, then it, in the 11th hour, literally, contemplates re-entering the race. Which, in some ways, I kind of wish he had, like, just flown in and showed up, because it, it was already so crazy. Like, why not add a little more crazy salad to it all? Um, but Humphrey, I mean, I think he really, you know, by trying to play both sides, it just goes so badly for him. And then he loses the support of LBJ. And then really, I mean, you don't want to be on the bad side of Lyndon B. Johnson. No, and there's basically Humphrey, the pro-war platform will be basically dictated on the telephone from Johnson in the White House. And it is passed by a very narrow margin. And delegates from New York are going to put on black armbands when it passed and saying we shall overcome and protest. Like this is a big deal. This war issue is very divisive. And Humphrey is seen as giving in to Johnson, which means that A, he's very, he's basically pro-war, and B, he's Johnson's dude. Like, this cements the idea in the public consciousness that he belongs to Johnson, that he's LBJ. And it makes him look weak, right? Yes. You know, I, 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 I've got this plan, and this is what we're going to do. Oh, just kidding. We're going to do what, what my boss says we're going to do, right? It doesn't make him seem like a man in charge, a man that's going to take a lead. It doesn't make him look like a leader. And it just allows this to continue to escalate. And you can imagine people watching at home, people on the floor, the fact that this sort of pro-war plank gets kind of wedged back in here, it's going to upset a lot of people. And because of the security measures in the convention hall that Mayor Daley has put into effect, all of these pro and anti-war factions are literally running into each other all the time. And so they're sniping at each other as they run into each other on the convention floor. And this is all on national television. Like this is being broadcast live. This is all day, every day, live. And remember, guys, there's no cable back then. These are like, you've got a handful of networks yes. and they're all playing this. <sighs> Senator Ribicoff of Connecticut nominates McGovern 
saying that with him as the president, there won't be Gestapo tactics in the United States, which is a, a definite zinger in Daly's direction. So he's basically calling out Daly. Daly, classy, uh, stands up and yells a series of anti-Semitic slurs, as well as some adult language that I will not repeat at the top of his lungs. So again, this is all happening on live television. Ribikoff basically kind of cocks his head and says how hard it is to accept the truth. And that's about it. There are city officials, will Chicago city officials, loyal to Daly, will jump on stage and essentially usher Ribikoff away. Again, on national television, while he's trying to nominate someone for president of the United States. This is all crazy town. Eventually, Humphrey is nominated in large part because of LBJ and LBJ makes some maneuvers behind the scenes, which again, <laughs> could not be more obvious that LBJ is still running the show, that he is in control, even if he's not running and that Humphrey is his man. And so you're seeing basically the party, the establishment is doing what the establishment is going to do, which is continue to perpetuate itself. And so this is going to make everybody, everybody angry. Yeah, imagine Humphrey, a guy who didn't even enter the 13 state primary elections of that year, partially because he was waiting to see what LBJ was going to do. A guy who um, has sort of not been able to really define himself. He wins this nomination. It's late. It's shortly after midnight in Chicago on Chicago time. And delegates are shouting no, no, no from the floor. Mm -hmm. So the impression if you're watching TV is like, this late night sort of decision uh, is how it sort of plays out on television. The people on TV are screaming, no, there's clearly most people in the hall don't seem to support him. It all looks really shady. And when I say people watching at home, 89 million people watch this live. There is no TV event today that 89 million people are tuning into to watch. And at midnight, 1 a.m. on the East Coast. Yeah. Even the Super Bowl numbers are not quite to that point in our current era. Yeah. So this is a lot of people, and it does not, it does not feel like a ringing endorsement. It does not feel like a strong step forward. And I mean, again, imagine that you're Nixon. All you have to do is be like, "Hey, listen, we're not that," you know. And then things get worse. Yeah, this is not even, it's not like they all pack up and just go home and it's all good. This is the prelude. So on August 28th, which is the second to last day of the entire convention, there had been people, including the Yippies, who we mentioned earlier, uh, are protesting in Grant Park. About 10,000 of them protesting in Grant Park for attending to march the amphitheater where the convention is being held. About 3.30 p.m., uh, one of the protesters gets to the flagpole, it's in the middle of the flag, and lowers the American flag. Police break through the crowd and beat him. The crowd responds to this by pelting the police with food, rocks, and chunks of concrete, yelling and screaming. The police will then throw tear gas. And again, it cannot emphasize this enough. This is all being broadcast live. Like we're, you're watching this in your living room in the middle of the afternoon. Police are gonna beat protesters with their rifle butts and clubs 
before they arrest them. The amount of tear gas that was used is so substantial that it makes its way to the Hilton, the nominee himself is staying, and it actually disturbs Humphrey while he's taking a shower. They're going to spray bystanders with mace. They indiscriminately attack people, all kinds of people who are present, uh, present there, and it's, it's insane. It's a riot. Protest leaders decide to move towards the hotel where the delegates are, and the police assault, like if you've seen an image, if you've heard of the 1968 Democratic National Convention, the image you've seen is of the police in riot gear backed up against the, the protesters. That's what this is. The whole world is watching this. And that's what they're yelling. That's what the rioters are yelling. The world is watching this. It, it falls apart quickly. The Illinois National Guard are on hand. They fire, continue to fire tear gas and the Sharrow police continue to be protesters. And the image of the police in front of the Hilton is from this moment. Um, this all takes place over about 17 minutes and is all on live TV, like every minute of this. And you're wondering to yourself as you're sitting at home in South Dakota or Alabama or wherever you're from, what the heck is going on? Like the world is coming to an end. You've had two high profile assassinations so far this year. It is only the end of August. And suddenly there's a riot at the Democratic National Convention and you're seeing it in front of you. And it's literally beyond comprehension, I think, um, what is going to go on. And no one really knows like how this is all going to eventually affect the campaign. What ends up happening, they do end up nominating Humphrey and the convention sort of closes, but they kind of limp to the finish of the Democratic National Convention that year. And it is really hard to underscore how much this is going to affect both Humphrey and Nixon. You know, this puts Nixon in the, the Republican convention was great. It was seamless. It was easy. They nominated Nixon. There was a little debate about the vice president, big whoop. And now the Democratic Party like breaks out into violence. And so you're seeing the contrast and Nixon doesn't even have to say a thing. That's the like for Nixon, that's the beautiful part about all this. He just needs to keep his mouth shut. Look at these people. I'm not that. These these images are going to tell the story themselves. And again, I don't think we can overstate the importance of the media in this and the role that the media plays. The protesters in the crowd will be chanting, the world is watching because there are cameras everywhere. And uh, the press over the course of the convention had grown increasingly angry with Daly and his officials and his crowds. There's a pretty uh, notable incident where Dan Rather is essentially sort of roughed up, just trying to talk to people, do his job as a journalist. And when he relays the story to Walter Cronkite, Cronkite calls Daly and the Chicago officials thugs. He says they're essentially, we're dealing with a pack of thugs here. So there's no incentive for any journalist to spin this in Daly's uh, defense. There's no no really reason for anyone to show any other side of this other than police beating and putting tear gas onto protesters. And the imagery is is the exact opposite of what Daly had hoped yes. to accomplish. 
And you're seeing just how divided the country is, particularly with the fallout from this, because there are a lot of the demonstrators who think America is with us, but Daly claims with some justification that America is with him, you know, that they, he gets so many more letters in support of the police and of what they did rather than of the demonstrators, rather than against the police. That's going to be really key. And there's a commenter who later will say that that night is the night America decided to elect Richard Nixon president of the United States. Like, watch this unfold in real time. People do not side with the demonstrators in large measure. They side with the police. This is craziness. This We need to bring law and order back. We need to stop this youthful, whatever it is. And so you're seeing the generational divide happen here. So, so much of this is like galvanized by young college kids, you know, early 20s and things. And they're they think they're right. They think that the country is with them. And it turns out the country really is more siding with Nixon uh, than they had anticipated. Yeah. And imagine too, we sort of talk about this a little bit in the first part of this 1968 episode, but so much has happened in the months leading up to August. And this is the very end of August. So imagine there has been essentially just seven, eight months of just nonstop upheaval. And there have been protests, riots, demonstrations all across the country for months and months and months. And then to turn on your TV and see this again, people are feeling fatigued by it. They're feeling frightened. There's a sense of, if we don't stop, this is just going to never end. And so I, I, you can certainly understand where some Americans are starting to go, this is too much. We have gone too far. We have got to tamp this down because this is not the first first time they've seen this, right? It's it's the building up month after month after month of upheaval and division and violence. You also are seeing this is the kind of violence that you're seeing on the nightly news in Vietnam. So it, that's happening here, like in Chicago. I can imagine like you watch the news every night and be like, this isn't a war zone. This is Chicago. And it just, Humphrey comes out of the convention with no post-convention bump. Humphrey does not look like a lead. He doesn't give his accept a speech. He's had to give a different sort of speech than he had anticipated. And it just does not, the convention does not do the Democrats any favors. And Humphrey is enormously weakened uh, out of the gate on this. Uh, and so that's kind of where we are. We're at the end of August and we've had two conventions. We now have a leader uh, in both parties, we have a nominee, but things have gotten a little insane and we're not really sure. Just to mention the other side of this, Humphrey's running mate who they select is Edmund Muskie, who's the senator from Maine. So apparently we only wanted northern states in the Democratic Party, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Maine uh, in 1968. So that's kind of, he gets nominated for the vice presidential slot. So we got Humphrey Muskie is the ticket. Local angle, if you have been down to the wharf, there's um, a lobsterman statue down at the wharf if you've ever been sort of on the district donut side of the wharf and uh muskie is a big player in getting that lobsterman statue placed along the fish market there even though we do not typically get lobsters in to our fish market because not a lot of lobsters in the chesapeake yeah. Bay that i think anyone would want to eat um maybe there are i'm not a crustacean expert sure. um but I've, I've i've never bought a lobster at the fish market but muskie was a big pusher for getting that lobster statue to be um, placed in our nation's capital so we could all remember the main lobsterman.
I love it. So that's my only bit of musky trivia. I love it so much. (laughs) So that's where we're going to, we're going to wrap up here for part two. We're going to leave the Democrats in disarray. We're going to leave Nixon. uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about his silent majority and the Southern strategy a little bit in the next bit, but uh, we are at the end of August. There are a Democrat and a Republican nominee and there's been violence and we got an election in like two months. Yeah. It's about eight weeks to election day. And um, this is not exactly where you want to be going into a general election. No, this is not. And also, the, I think part of the, what hurts the Democrats, too, is that they did not have a front runner really until absolutely the end of August. That's not ideal. You want to have a front runner so you can start campaigning rather against the Republican rather than against each other. So that's kind of where we are. And uh, this is going to be like the the middle part. We're going to end sad and kind of on a an uncertain and unresolved note here. That sort of implies that the third part might end on a happy note, but I don't oh, really no. know if that's true either. <laughs> no, that's true. All right, fair enough. That's well, fair. Well. So we will be back in two weeks, a couple weeks with the third part, which is going to be the election and uh, a bunch of other shenanigans. Spoiler alert, Nixon does Nixon comes by his nicknames, quite honestly. So we'll talk more about that in the next part. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, listening. Um, please be sure to follow us on social media. You can always reach us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your suggestions. We love hearing from listeners. Big thank you, as always, to our patrons who keep the podcast going. Uh, I'm really looking forward to us digging in a little bit more on Nixon. So I hope you will tune in uh, on the next episode. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks, friends. Bye. Bye.